great to be with you this morning. And um, do we have a photo up there that's come straight after all the slides? There it is. Thank you for praying for me uh, last week. I've been in Sydney for three nights, and this is the team uh, AFES uh, team, which is the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students uh, that work at the University of Technology in Sydney. Uh, and I'm there in the blue T-shirt. I've had a wonderful time uh, teaching the Praying Church Seminar uh, with this uh, team, and it was a delight to be with them. I, I hope you can see how multicultural the, the team is. Uh, being a missionary kid who lived uh, in Asia, it was a, a delight to uh, be with them. And uh, my, my biggest joy and my biggest relief is uh, the feedback, that it was uh, helpful, encouraging, uh, particularly from Paul, who's really excited about uh, taking um, what was learned and, and building on it uh, over the coming uh, months and years. So thank you for your support and for your prayers. And keep in mind that we have um, our own seminar, uh, a praying church seminar coming up in just about five weeks, March 10 uh, and 11. Uh, and that won't be with me. That's with someone who's um, uh, much better at this than I am called John Horry, who's going to be flying out from the US March 10 and 11 uh, to help us in our journey towards becoming a praying church uh, and it is my deep hope and prayer that uh, you have marked that in your calendar and are making it a priority uh, to uh, catch this uh, wonderful and exciting uh, vision. Uh, it was a delight to uh, be there. So thank you for your support. You can uh, move on from that slide now if you like, because this morning uh, we're talking about every member ministry, every member ministry. In other words, ministry is for everyone. The word um, Ministry uh, is translated from the Greek um, uh, diakonia, uh, and it simply means uh, service. Uh, to be a minister means to be a servant, and ministry is uh, about service, and ministry is uh, for everyone. Uh, if you call yourself a Christian, that means you bear the name of, of Christ, the Lord Jesus, who said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so to bear the name of Christ means not to be served, but to serve and to lay down your life for others. The follower of Christ is a servant. And it's interesting how the early church picked up this idea of radical service. And we've got these wonderful vignettes in the early church of how the early church picked up um, what this looks like. And, and we're going to look at one of these, uh, a biblical one, Acts 6, this morning. But I just want to give you two instances of how the early church was so shaped by this radical service. So uh, this one comes from the 4th century. It was the um, city of Caesarea. And, um, and, and this city had been struck by famine and by war. They were on their knees until then a plague came and, and was really, they were just on death's door, this city of Caesarea in the fourth century. And, and one historian writes that the populace began fleeing the city for safety in the countryside. However, in the midst of all the fleeing inhabitants, at least one group was staying behind, the Christians. Uh, there was a bishop of the city called Eusebius. He was a bishop as well as a, a historian. We have a number of his writings. And he writes that during this plague in the city of Caesarea, all day long, the Christians tended to the dying and to their burial. Countless number had no one to care for them. Other Christians gathered from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine, and they distributed bread to them. 
Uh, this, this beauty that Rochelle was talking about, the beauty of the bride of Christ in, in, in sacrificial service that was such a powerful witness. This, there's another um, example, which is probably um, one of my favorites from uh, early church history. Uh, and it's uh, this letter that Emperor Julian, uh, who was the emperor of Rome, um, wrote to one of his pagan priests around the same time, actually, in, in the 4th century. And he was complaining about how uh, these Christians were winning so many people to Christ and how they They'd grown from this tiny little sect to this huge movement that was sweeping across the empire. And so he writes to one of his pagan priests, and, and the priests were kind of responsible for social uh, service. And here's what he writes. He said, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, in other words, Christians, he calls them impious Galileans, they observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. All people see that our people lack aid from us. They're complaining about, he's complaining about this radical Christian service uh, that was seen in the early church. Uh, and this is what attracted people, that they saw the love the disciples had to one another and they glorified God in heaven. They, they wanted it. And, and the reason I share these instances with you is that we see a similar instance of the same in care for the poor, the orphans and the widows in the story that we're looking at this morning. Uh, this is radical Christian service and every member ministry. It's interesting in the, in the um, letter that Emperor Julian wrote to these, um, about these pagan priests is that the pagan priests were the professionals, right? It was their job to do the Christian service. But, but for, in the church, it was just every member. Every member, it's just what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And they were excelling and exceeding the pagan priest whose job it was to care. And so it's a picture of radical Christian service and every member ministry. So picking it up where we are in, in terms of the context of Acts chapter 6, uh, I hope you'll keep it in front of you. That's where we're going to be going this morning, is that um, the, uh, the gospel was advancing with full felt force. Uh, Jesus had laid down his life as a ransom and he'd been raised from the dead. Not only that, he'd been ascended to the right hand of the Father and he'd poured out on his church his resurrection power and glory and spirit on Pentecost Sunday. And he had given them a command and he said, you'll be my witnesses. Uh, you go and make disciples to all nations. He said, you'll be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And, and actually that kind of makes up the structure of the book of Acts. So where we are in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 6 is we're getting to the end of that first chapter. They're still in Jerusalem. Uh, that's where they are. But the gospel has been advancing through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and they get a bit of a hiccup in the story this morning. But then the conclusion gets back on track. Have a look at verse 7. Uh, the word of God continued to spread or grow. So this command of being witnesses through to the ends of the earth uh, gets back on track. Now this word for spread or grow is an organic term. So um, Elsewhere, Jesus says, consider the lilies, how they grow. Uh, th this is an organic term. Um, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to uh, the Colossians who are in Asia Minor, in, in verse 6, he says, the gospel, hear the organic imagery, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing 
in the whole world. You know how Jesus, in his parables, he talked about the gospel as a a seed, right? It's an organic agricultural picture. Here's the idea. The gospel has power in and of itself. It's not like a telephone book. God's word is living and active and the power of salvation. And what we see is that the gospel is spreading and growing. But here's the thing. The only way that it can grow is if God's people preach, if God's people share it. Gospel means good news. It is a message and it can't grow unless God's people share it, if God's people preach and God's people pray. And that's what we see is happening here in verse 7. And, and, and what that means is that if there's one thing that, or two things that the devil hates more than anything else, it's when God's people preach. And I mean all God's people. Preaching is just sharing the message about Jesus. And when God's people pray. And he is constantly at work to keep us from sharing the message of the Lord Jesus and to keep us from praying for his spiritual power. And you see this, and John Stott picks up on this in the book of Acts. You see how as the gospel advances through Acts, the enemy is constantly trying to undermine and to prevent the spread of the word and the prayers of the people. So um, in Acts chapter 3, the way that he tries to stop them and undermine them is that Peter had preached a sermon after healing a dude at Solomon's gate, and, and he starts preaching, and they arrest him. I think they beat him, and then they bring him out, and they say, we command you not to speak in Jesus' name. So of course, the enemy works in all kinds of ways. He's very cunning and wily. And so in chapter 3, he tries to prevent the spread of the hope of salvation through physical persecution. Uh, But then he rears his ugly head again in in chapter 5, where it's within the body of Christ where we see this um, uh, immorality and greed. So it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And they're kind of greedy, they're sneaky, and they kind of sell stuff, and they kind of pretend that they're being really generous, generous, but they're actually lying about it. And so there's this, this time it's from within the church, this moral corruption and, and decay to undermine the witness of the church in, uh, amongst the nations. But, but here's what John Stott says about what the, the instance, this is the third instance that we're looking at this morning. The devil's next attack was the cleverest of the three. Having failed to overcome the church by persecution and then by corruption, he now tries distraction. If he could preoccupy the apostles with social administration, which though essential, was not their calling, then they would neglect their God-given responsibilities to pray and to preach And if they did that, they would leave the church without any defense against false teaching and false doctrine. So the enemy tactic in this instance is distraction. If he could keep the apostles from preaching and praying, then he'd be able to contain the spread of the word of God. So as we go through this story this morning, it's just seven verses. What I want you to see is the problem, the solution the qualifications, and then finally the results. So have a look at the problem. It's there in verse 1. Well, uh, it's not initially a problem because it says, now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number. That's not a problem. That's great. That the people are coming to find hope and salvation in Christ. But then we see that how growth can bring on new challenges, right? Things become more 
complex. You've got to um, catch up with the growth like in any business. But of course, uh, and so that's what we see uh, going forward. Uh, Here's the problem. The Hellenists. Let's stop there. Who are the Hellenists? The Hellenists are Christians who, they're, they're Christians, but they were culturally Greek and probably their first language was, was Greek, right? So the Hellenists, it says, complained against the Hebrews. Okay, who are the Hebrews? They're also Christians, but they're culturally Jewish. And it might be that their first language was Aramaic. So you've got these two cultures in the body of Christ. It crosses cultures, um, but they, the Hellenists complain against the Hebrews. Why? Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So there's no social welfare, there's no welfare state. Uh, it was, uh, you were on your own, especially if you were a widow. Your number one kind of um, protection against um, financial distress was your husband. So widows were particularly vulnerable. And here, uh, you've got um, the, he- the Greek Christians being overlooked. Now, you've got to remember that this was in Jerusalem, right? So one of these two races is in the cultural ascendancy, right? The Jews, the Hebrew Christians, are kind of at home. So it's not hard, as I look out on this congregation, to see who's in the cultural ascendancy uh, in a place like Cottesloe. Uh, but then you've got the, the Greeks, who are in the minority, and they're being uh, overlooked by the majority of people in the church. Uh, and and the, probably the simple reason for this is because of this rapid growth that maybe it was easy to manage when there were a small number of Christians, but as this rapid growth that we see through um, chapters 1 to 6 of Acts, uh, it became more complex, the systems and processes weren't keeping up, and so uh, the Greek Christians were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. But can you see how this was so core, the care for widows was so fundamental to the nature of the early church. And and if you read the Old Testament, you know that the care for orphans and widows and the poor was so close to God's heart. And so one commentator says that this text suggests that a community's compassion should be measured by how it cares for the poor, the orphaned, and the widowed. So let us not forget how many widows there are among us in our fellowship. And let's not forget our brother, Jeremy, who was up here last Sunday, currently in the process of trying to repatriate five orphaned grandchildren. Try and get your head around that. Five orphaned grandchildren in a refugee camp and working with the government to try to repatriate these orphans so that they can come and settle in Perth. This is a clear test of a church's compassion, how they treat the poor and the widows and the orphans. And so, Father, even now we pray for Jeremy's grandchildren. Rend the heavens and come down. You make a way where there is no way. You turn seas into highways. And so we ask you, Lord, to clear the way together, uh, Lord, before you and your throne of grace, that you would make a way for them to come through the bureaucracy and all of the things, Lord, that they would be able to settle here in Perth and we would be able to enjoy a great day of rejoicing as they come here. In Christ's name, amen.
Well, it's clear from verse 1 that people are complaining. That's what they did in the wilderness against Moses. Um, The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, I think it's verse 14, says, do everything without complaining. But here they are, they're complaining, and it's tearing at the fabric of the church and the Christian community. So, So that's the first problem that we see, but it opens up a bigger problem and a bigger threat in verse 2. The the apostles, to deal with the problem, they gather the 12, they gather the whole community, so it's not a top-down approach to address this issue, and they say this, it's not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. That's the language that they use for uh, kind of like social service and, and the ministry of this distribution of food. And so they're saying as big as a problem it would be for us to neglect caring for widows and orphans, they're very clear it would be a much bigger problem if we were to set aside our primary calling as apostles, which is to preach and to pray, because how else is the word of God and the hope of salvation going to spread? That would be a bigger problem they're saying. But John Stott says this. There's no hint whatsoever that the apostles regarded social work as inferior to pastoral work or that it was beneath their dignity. It was entirely a question of calling. You go read one Acts chapter 1. You, he says to the apostles, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the God has given us a call. And woe to us if we abandon that call or are distracted by that call from the Lord Jesus Christ. They had no liberty to be distracted from their own priority task. Now, there's a key principle at work here that applies still today. You see, God calls all of his people to ministry. We're talking about every member ministry, but he calls different people to different ministries. You see, the the word ministry, uh, the, the word diakonia in the Greek actually comes up twice, and we see two different kinds of ministry. You don't pick it up in the English, but in verse 2, they talk about waiting on tables, and that word wait is um, diakonia. It's about the ministry of, 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 of tables, and then it comes up again, have a look in verse 5, when they say, serving the word. If you had the Greek in front of you, you would see they're the same word. In other words, some have this ministry, and some have that. It's that simple. Just like the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the encourager in encouraging, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. And that's just a sample. But ministry is for everyone. He just gives different ministries to different people. And the whole body needs to work together to do its work. So let me ask you, what's, what's your gift How is God calling you to serve? I love what Rochelle has reminded us of this morning. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. You need to step out and start serving to find out what your gifts are and how he will equip you. 
But let's be clear in verse 3 that there are three qualifications that they look for in these people. It's, it, it, they're not looking for anyone, any Joe Blog. They're looking for three qualities and qualifications in verse 3. Select from among yourselves seven people, one, of good standing, that means of good reputation, two, who are full of the Holy Spirit, and three, who are full of wisdom. Now, I'm, I'm convinced you can kind of like take this, try this one on for size, or as my youth boys would say, put that in your pipe and smoke it. No, that's not what I, I actually mean. But, but looking at these three qualifications... I am convinced that one of the main reasons that so many so-called Christian schools and so many so-called Christian charities and so many so-called Christian hospitals and aid agencies, etc., etc., the reason that so many of these so-called Christian institutions have lost their Christian identity is because they have not looked at the qualifications for appointing leaders in Acts chapter 6 verse 3 or 1 Timothy or Titus and the qualifications for leaders, even for something as unspiritual as waiting on tables. These are three Christian qualifications and it's a travesty, don't you think? that so many gospel-centered institutions have lost their Christian identity, and I'm putting to you, because they haven't understood Acts chapter 6, verse 3, and the qualifications for leaders and appointing leaders, and particularly the second qualification, full of the Spirit. They're to be full of the Spirit of Jesus. Now, it is no mystery, if you read the Bible, what it means to be full of the Spirit. Because all through Acts and through the Scriptures, it shows us what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what it looks like for Jesus in the wilderness, where we're told he was filled with the Holy Spirit, is constantly quoting Scripture, the Word of God revealed to us in our pews, in defense against the evil one. That's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 calls the Bible the sword of the Spirit. So one of the qualifications is they're filled with the Spirit, which means filled with Scripture, like Jesus was saturated with Scripture. In Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost Sunday, we're told that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does he do after he's filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2? He preaches a bold, gospel-centered, Jesus-centered sermon about the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, his resurrection, and the call to repent and believe in Jesus. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, Stephen, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who we meet in this, in Acts chapter 7, again, he preaches a sermon about the Lord Jesus bold and convicting. And then at the end in verse 55, while he's filled with the Spirit, it says he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Again and again, we're left in no uncertain terms about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And it's about being filled with Scripture and it's about being filled with the Lord Jesus. And I submit to you that the reason, if you see a so-called Christian organization that has lost its Christian identity, it's because these qualifications for leadership, no matter who they are, have been ignored. Something administrative even as um, uh, uh, caring for widows uh, and and orphans. And, And so God have mercy on us that we wouldn't be so naive as to think that the enemy is not constantly trying to undermine the ministry of the word and the character and qualifications for leaders and to dilute and to compromise our witness in our appointment of leaders in our church. And so here's what I think God's saying to us 
this morning and saying to you. He's saying, I care far more about your Christian character and I care far more about your Christian conviction than I care about your competence. That's what I see in these three qualifications. So how are you growing in your Christian character? And how are you developing your Christian conviction? Well, they set apart seven men. Uh, They all have Greek names. Uh, They're looking after uh, the Greek Christian widows. And they lay hands on them and they pray for them. And then we see the result in verse 7. The word of God continued to spread. In other words, crisis averted. The apostles were going to be distracted, but they weren't because God's people were raised up uh, to wait on tables. The number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. See, they're in Jerusalem still. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There it is again, the priests, their main job description, part of their main job description was care for the poor and the orphans and the widows. Why are they coming to Christ? Because they're looking at the lay people going, oh my goodness, you're better at this than we are. You do social welfare better than we do. And so the priests converted to the faith because they saw every member ministry and this radical Christian service amongst the ministry, the body of believers. Now, there's a whole lot more that could be said uh, about this passage. There's so much in there, not least that um, we get uh, Nicholas, shout out to Nick, uh, as a um, uh, maybe the first instance, I don't know, of uh, a guy called Nick in the Bible, but much more than that as well. But there's one thing that I want to uh, wrap up with you this morning, uh, and that is based on the first reading, John chapter 12, where we see the story of um, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. It was John uh, chapter 12. And this is an insight from uh, Max Lucado about the body of Christ and every member ministry that we get this beautiful picture of that in this story in John chapter 12. Because the interesting thing in that story is that they all played different parts and positions. They, they loved God. They got along together really well. And they each wanted to serve uh, the Lord Jesus. But they, they didn't do it in the same way. They each played different positions in the story. So think about Martha. You, you may know, you may remember Martha's inclination, her gifting. She was a tireless servant. Mary, however, was a total worshipper. And Lazarus had a powerful testimony. That they were all family to Jesus after he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember? And so they decided after that to have a dinner party to honour the Lord Jesus. And at this dinner party, Martha served. She made sure all the pieces were in place and that the the dinner party was a success. Mary, what does she do at the dinner party? She worshipped. She anointed the Lord's feet with this extravagant gift, this perfume, and the aroma filled the whole room. What about Lazarus? Well, Lazarus had an amazing story to tell. He was dead. God raised him from the dead. So he was ready to share his story, to witness to the Lord Jesus and what he had done. So three different people, right? Each with a different gift and a different background, but equal value. And all three of them were needed to be able to pull off the party. 
And that's much like our spiritual family that, that, that we need. Every church needs Martha's, right? Sleeves rolled up and, and, and the room all set up and ready. They're the pace setters for everyone else. The lights are on, the aircon's working, everything's in its proper place. You don't appreciate the Martha's until the Martha's are missing. And then everyone's scrambling around going, oh, do you know how to turn this on? Where do you find this? How do we get all this organized? That's Martha. Meanwhile, what's Mary doing at the party? She's sitting and she's worshipping at Jesus' feet. She's inspiring others to worship the Lord Jesus, pouring out her most precious possession to the Lord Jesus. And the fragrance, just like our praise and our worship, it, the fragrance fills the whole room and inspires the rest of us to worship and to extravagant praise. So just like there's a place for practical service, there's also a place for extravagant and lavish praise. But we need Mary's because we forget what it looks like to worship, but, but they don't. The worship overflows. They pour it out. Then, of course, there's Lazarus. And he had a different calling altogether to the other two. Uh, His responsibility was outside with the crowd. Verse 9 of John chapter 12 says, The crowd came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. Lazarus was there to testify. He had a testimony and a message to share about what God had done in his life. And God used him mightily to testify to what Jesus had done. God wants us all to proclaim and to testify to his love. But you know what? There's just some people who are really good at it and have a great story to tell. So look at it this way. Lazarus specialized in testifying, but he also worshipped and he also served. Martha specialized in tireless service, but she also worshipped and she also testified to the Lord Jesus. Mary, she specialized in extravagant worship, but she also testified and she also served. That that should be a picture of our family at St. Philip's. There's a position maybe or two that we gravitate towards in particular, but but we're all in it together, working and serving as a body, and we're all on the same team. They all found their position, with one exception. There's a fourth character in the story, Judas. Even though he'd spent more time with the Lord Jesus than all of the other three combined, the servant king, He'd spent more time with him than anyone, but he was hard. See, there are plenty of perks to hanging out with the Lord Jesus. There are plenty of perks to hanging out with the people who hang out with the Lord Jesus. But he was a fake. He was a fraud. He was in it for himself. It says in the story that when Mary poured out this ointment on Jesus, he acted all hyper-spiritual. He was like, oh, this could have been sold and all the money given to the poor. He didn't care about the poor. He was a thief. He was a taker. He came to church to consume. He didn't come to contribute. That's Judas. So like Martha, we need to take time to serve. Like Mary, we need to take time to worship. And like 
Lazarus, we need to take time to testify to Jesus and who he is. But around Jesus, you'll always find people like Judas, who even after spending so much time with him, take and take and take in the presence of the one who gave and gave and gives and gives. So this morning, if you're a Martha serving tirelessly, be encouraged. God sees your service. If you're here this morning and you're like a Mary, be blessed and enriched. God sees your worship and it rises to him as incense, a pleasing smell to him. If you're a Lazarus, be bold. God honours your conviction. But if you're a Judas, be warned. God sees and God knows. But no matter who you are this morning, worship the one who gave his life and laid down his life for your sins so that you might take up your life forever. Freely we've received from him. Freely we give. May God bless you and strengthen you in your service of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in 2023. May he guide you, give you his wisdom, his strength, his joy, and his grace. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to sing.